Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin. This week, we are talking about stages 9 and 10 of the Giro d'Italia, where we stand going into the first rest day. And we also have an interview with uh, Marco Panati, the team bike exchange performance coach, also four-time Giro d'Italia stage winner, pink jersey wear, six-time Italian national time trial champion, ninth overall at the 2010 Giro, and just kind of all-around uh, time trial and training guru. So I'm going to grill him about what the heck's going on with Renko Evanepoel. How come this guy can be so fast after not racing for 266 days? Um, also go into uh, Egan Bernal and his uh, fairly long racing layoff before the Giro as well. If this is a trend or if these guys are just freaks and they can get away with stuff other people can't. He has a lot of, a uh, lot of, lot of interesting things to say about that. So Stick around to hear about that. And also, he kind of gives as much of a prediction and preview for the coming two weeks as he can as an employee of another team. But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can uh, sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition uh, that comes out once a week. If you are enjoying the podcast, that's a no-brainer. Sign up for that right now. And there's a paid edition that is daily during Grand Tours. Definitely sign up for that if you are finding yourself wanting more Giro d'Italia, Tour de France, or Volta a España daily analysis. Um, there's also discounts to certain brands like Curé of Switzerland and Stages Cycling included in that membership, and you can sign up today at beyondpeloton.substack.com. All right, so back to the Giro. Um, stage 10 just happened, so I'll just talk about that while it's fresh on the mind. Peter Sagan won in a pretty classic vintage sprint finish for him. His Bora team kind of methodically burnt off the, the fast sprinters, the fastest sprinters on a climb, about 50 to 40K from the finish. Um, it was pretty textbook, pretty impressive. Sagan, you could tell he was hurting quite a bit, but he held on, knowing that if he got over that climb, uh, all the fastest riders would be gone, and even the sprinters who, who hung on, like Elia Viviani and Fernando Gaviria, would be so, so shot from uh, the high pace on the climb that he could probably beat him in the sprint. Really, really, really impressive tactics from Bora. I was actually impressed they got Emmanuel Bookman to do quite a bit of the polling on the climb since he is still less than two minutes back in the GC and here for the GC. So it shows you how much uh, pull Sagan has at that team. Um, and even though he's leaving and they maybe don't have the best relationship at the moment, just how much he can like throw his weight around there. Because not many... Not many sprinters would uh, be able to convince a GC rider to work for them on a sprint stage during a Grand Tour. Gaviria got second. UAE kind of led him out. Milano from his team has been just like all over the place. Uh, not the most consistent or maybe experienced lead out man, but he just blew by Gaviria. Uh, Gaviria never had a chance to get on his wheel. Sagan smartly went right after him. Uh, Milano led into the final corner that was like 100 meters from the finish. So whoever came out of that first was going to win win the stage. Uh, Milano pulls off in the middle of the turn. Sagan exits, just blows out of that corner. And when this is like his specialty, and of course, no one can come around him. Uh, UAE kind of stuffs that up. Davi Chimala on Israel Startup Nation gets third. That's his third podium of the Giro so far. That's actually pretty impressive. Uh, I thought he might win a stage, but with Sagan now looking a little bit back to his old self, um, any stage that he could win, Sagan will probably just beat him at from now on. So bad news for him, but the 31-year-old Italian is having a really a breakout race. So that's kind of cool to see. Um, and Sagan takes the lead in the points jersey race. I don't think he's giving that up anytime soon. Um, he came here for that Ciclamino jersey, and now that he has it, he's not going to give that up. I think he, he takes that into Milan, and it is curtains on that, that competition, in my opinion. Uh, kind of a freaky fact is Sagan won at stage 10 of the 2020 Giro. So that's wild he won two stage 10s in a row. I wonder if that's ever happened before. Um, in the GC, there was kind of an interesting jockeying for time bonuses with 19K to go, where uh, Dukona Quickstep came to the front for Rimko Evanepoel. There was a time bonus sprint. The winner would get three seconds, uh, second place two, third place one. They try to lead out Rimko. Uh, Ineos and Bernal are up to the challenge. I mean, this was pretty wild to see. Uh, Panati talks about this during the interview where he thinks this is almost like psychological warfare as opposed to actually going for the time because in the end, three seconds isn't going to make or break anyone's GC campaign. But after gapping uh, Rimko Evanepoel, Bernal gets caught by him. And then Jonathan Navarro on Ineos, pretty heads-up move, see, sees that he's going to beat Bernal. 
and out sprints him. It's tough though because he has to wait until he's sure Remco is going to beat him to start sprinting because he doesn't want to beat his own rider because Bernal, it would be better for Bernal to take first place and get the three seconds versus his teammate. So really, really heads up riding by, by Navaris there. Um, really impressive. And he just blows by Remco. Um, I think if we've learned one thing from this Giro that Remco seemingly has, has no limits except for his sprinting. Uh, not, not the best sprinter. But that was very cool to see. Super intense. Um, Evanapol gets a, sec- a net second because he gets second and Bernal gets third. So he's now within 14 seconds on the GC instead of 15 seconds. Um, and, but once again, that, that's like not going to matter. Uh, no one's going to win this race by a second, but uh, it definitely is going to give them some momentum and like a, a morale boost heading into the rest day. And I guarantee you Bernal's not going to be happy to lose that second to him either. But overall, that kind of sums up like how I almost think unexpectedly exciting this first week has been. I didn't think either Bernal or Rimko Evanapol were going to be able to throw down. I thought they were both going to have uh, health issues that held them back. But they're both incredibly, incredibly talented cyclists. So to see him kind of duking it out on somewhat meaningless mid-stage sprints on sprint stages is very cool. That shows you just how competitive this Giro is and how much more excitement we have ahead of us. Um, on yesterday's stage nine, uh, that was a GC stage finished. Uh, not, I mean, we haven't even been up, I, I would hesitate to say hard, but any like real climbs, real long alpine climbs. Uh, we're still down the boot. We were uh, a little further south on stage nine than stage 10 uh, in the Apennine Mountains in the Abruzzo region. Very rugged, very remote, very beautiful. And the final climb wasn't very long. It was just about six kilometers. Um, and the average gradient was, wasn't that steep, 5.7%. But um, we went through a tunnel with 3K to go. We popped out with 2K to go. And from that 2K in, it was steep. It was like average of 9% and then gravel the last kilometer and a half. So Anyone who's ridden up like 14% gravel knows that it's very hard. It's much, much more difficult than the uh, asphalt equivalent. It was, it was a, a definitely going to be a frisky stage. Ineos, I thought it was really interesting that Ineos, um, I think Ineos of old would have just taken the front with like 50k to go and just blown, try to blow everybody up. They did come to the front with about 32 kilometers to go, um, but Salvatore Puccio, uh, their domestique on the front couldn't even, he wasn't even really, he, he got the gap to the break down, but then it kind of stagnated. He couldn't really decimate the field or uh, blow up the breakaways gap. So that just shows you it wasn't that hard. They actually leave the front at 16K to go. Um, you rarely see Ineos do a strategic retreat like this. I thought that was really interesting. Um, with 14K to go, Rimco is on the front by himself trying to break the race up, which I thought was really showed as an experience. I mean, you should never be doing that if you're trying to win a Grand Tour. Um, what, whatever time you might think you will gain, uh, the energy would be better spent if you're just sitting in the wheels waiting for the climb. Uh, but Ineos, it, it will, the, the key thing is here, they, they want to catch the breakaway so that Bernal can sprint, uh, can try to win the stage and get the, the time bonuses for winning the 10-second time bonus. With 3.4K uh, to go, there's still over a minute to the breakaway. It looks like Ineos had screwed it up. They come to the front, um, and it really starts coming down. Uh, so I, I had thought they, they had kind of screwed up with this um, retreat strategy, but it actually worked out kind of perfectly because they didn't have to invest that many, much energy, and they didn't spend that much time on the front. But the way the gap was coming down in that last 3K, it was kind of clear that, at least to me, it was clear that uh, Bernal was going to have at least the chance to win the stage. That the two breakaway riders couldn't couldn't stay away. Um, with one k to go, they come out of a tunnel, and Bernal has slipped back considerably in the peloton. To me, this is a symptom of him just not racing that much. He's not used to being in uh, in the group fighting for the wheels. Makes a big strategic error here. You can see Joao Almeida is looking for him. His team can't find him on the front. Um, Johnny Moscon just starts drilling it onto the gravel. Uh, this is a this is a great tactic right here. Um, they they've waited, you know, they've waited kind of an insanely like, it seems like an insanely long time, but they know a lot of damage can be done in this last kilometer, and immediately the gap to the break just starts falling. Evanapol still buried pretty far back. Alexander Vlasov attacks with uh, half a kilometer left to go. You can still see Joao looking around for Evanapol, can't find him. Um, and then Bernal counterattacks, and it is an impressive counterattack. It looked really, really, really explosive. I, I was shocked. Um, he blows behind the two breakaway riders, like literally like they're standing still. 
Um, they, they almost like look that they get blown over by him. Um, he shifts into the big ring, and I, I one thing I thought was notable is he's out of the saddle drilling it on like 14% grades, while the rest of the, the chasers are then at this point around 10 seconds back, and they're all seated, I would guess, in the little ring, um, which is the safer move because you can, once you're standing up on the gravel, you can start to slip out. If that happens, you're in big trouble, especially if you're stuck in the big ring. So Bernal taking some big risks there. Um, he must have been confident. I, I wonder if, if they, had a, they might have had someone working for the team out on that climb earlier in the day and relayed back to him that he would be able to go into the big ring and stand up. Um, knowing Ineos, I, I wouldn't be surprised if th- everything they do is very calculated. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what they did. But he definitely has a torque advantage on, the, on these steep pitches with like 200 meters to go when everyone else is still in the little ring, still um, seated. Uh, he crosses the line to win. Uh, Ciccone, Giulio Ciccone is only seven seconds back, same as Vlasov. Evan pulls 10 seconds back with Dan Martin. And then Yates, Bardet, Mark Soler, Danny Martinez, his teammate, are 12 seconds back. So with the time bonus, it's not crazy, uh, crazy time gaps, but, but significant for sure. Um, and at this point, he's put 35 seconds into Evanipol on stages, just stages four, four, six, and nine. So uh, kind of taking time seemingly whenever he wants from Evanipol. Um, and, and then was leading after the stage by 15 seconds, despite finishing 20 seconds behind him in the opening time trial. Um, I kind of thought, I mean, considering how short that climb was and how quote unquote mild it is, um, I thought that was like, I thought this was like a real warning shot. Um, if he's in the condition he's in for the rest of the race, he'll probably win. Um, I think he'll be able to get enough time on Evanipole, especially in the higher mountains, to give him the buffer he needs in the final time trial. And he's not that bad of a time trialist, especially on that final day. And I think just my guess is that Remco could, could slightly struggle um, just having never raced three weeks before in that final TT, have a bit of Roglic syndrome, if you will. But, but in Remco's defense, he, he's still the leader on the road. I mean, if they went to the final TT tomorrow, he would win this race. Hands, well, it would either be him or Vlasov. And that, that's, that's my next big takeaway from the stage. Vlasov is completely flying under the radar. Only finished, I believe, five seconds behind Evanipol in the opening TT. So we know the guy can time trial incredibly well. He's 21 seconds back on Bernal, six seconds back on Evanipol after stage nine. He's really lurking and he's a danger. And I bet Ineos knows it. I bet that's who they're also trying to take time from, not just Evanipol. Ineos is, is not doing what Yumbo did at the 2020 Tour de France and just being, you know, they, looking back, Yumbo was way too defensive. Um, they thought they had the race wrapped up, so just every stage they were just kind of controlling the pace, and they would just deliver Roglic to the finish with the rest. But Enios is being pretty, pretty cagey, pretty inventive. They tried to get Danny Martinez, who was just a minute and six seconds back on the GC, into the early break actually on stage nine, which would have put immense pressure on Dakota Quickstep and Astana to chase all day. I thought that was a really good move. Also, very unlike them, they don't normally race like this, so. The fact that they're getting so inventive and so aggressive tells me that they really want to take time. And they know they have to. I mean, this is, they're smart. They know that they need time on Evanipol and Vlasov. They need a lot of it. And they can't just wait until the third week. They can't count on these guys just falling apart. Because, the, I mean, both Evanipol and Vlasov, at least on paper, are great climbers. So there's no guarantee they'll just wilt away. Uh, and Bernal will just ride you know, easy into the race, into the race lead. Other note is Ciccone is now definitely the Trek GC leader. He probably needs to stop focusing on these breakaways. He's, he's doing a, two jobs at the moment. He's, he's like the breakaway rider and the GC rider. But he is riding really the, the zero of his life. Um, he's, he's in fourth place, 36 seconds back on Bernal. You know, he's, to me, looked like the, the best of the rest behind Bernal, Evan Apol, and Vlasov. Um, and he, he could seriously be on the podium at this race. Uh, and then just, just last note is Bernal is, is really dominating the time, the time bonuses here, whereas Rimko is not. Rimko has taken four time bonuses throughout the race, while, while Bernal has taken 17. Really, really being aggressive here. Like, really aggressive. I'm, I'm shocked by how aggressive him and Ineos are being. But that's good. That shows you that they have a lot of respect for Evanipol and Vlasov and the others, and they just want to take as much time you know, while they perceive themselves to have the advantage as possible. 
other thing is I, I find it interesting now, like the narrative has shifted to, oh, well, well, of course, Bernal's doing well. He's a punchy rider. You know, he's like a short, he does well on short, punchy climbs. And, and Evan Impel's more of a sustained climb specialist. But that's, uh, if you remember last year at the Tour de France at the start, Bernal was getting dropped on these short, punchy stages. And it was, well, he's a diesel. He does well on long <laughs> alpine climbs. So just, it's just fluid narrative that just keeps shifting around. Um, and Bernal, if you remember back to the tour he won in 2019, he was certainly not a punchy rider on that. He won that race because he was good on long, sustained alpine climbs in the third week. So I don't know where this narrative came from that he's a, like a punchy one-day Valverde-type rider. Um, that, that's not been who he is, he is at all. Um, if anything, he's a decent time trialist who does well on long, sustained, especially high-altitude climbs. There, there's nothing, the fact that he looks so good in this first week you know, probably tells me that he's just in great shape and he's going to be incredible when we get to the, if he can hold this form, he's going to be incredible when we, when we get to that third week. Um, th- there's obviously nothing to, to suggest Evan won't be great on long climbs because he can time trial very well and he's very light. So just those two objective facts would tell me that he's probably a pretty good climber. He doesn't have a ton of experience. Uh, he has zero experience racing a Grand Tour, zero experience in these Grand Tour Mountain stages where stuff can get a little tricky. Um, the races can be hard to read, you know. And if you get distanced on on one climb, and you're a little far from the finish, your race can really far fall apart. Think of like Tom Dumoulin at the 2015 Vuelta. That's actually who Remco reminds me of right now. He just looked incredibly impressive and incredibly strong until I believe stage 20 when he got ambushed by Fabio Aru and uh, Mika Landa. God, that seems like a lifetime ago. And they just put minutes into him because they isolated him and dropped him like 50 or 60K from the finish. And he just struggled to, to make it to the finish. Um, that's kind of what feels like could happen here. Obviously, that could easily not happen because Evan Apple's just so strong. Um, and maybe he could time trial himself out of any trouble. But that's also that, what we thought about Dumoulin. So um, just something to keep an eye on, something to remember as we get into the second week. We'll get, to, we'll get up to Marco Panati right now, but he had a great takeaway, which is if you look at this route, the Giro has not yet started. We haven't had any Alpine mountain stages. Time between first and 10th is about a minute, and that will be more, probably less than the time between first and second by the end of the Giro. So just take all of this with a grain of salt, and we just remember we don't really know anything yet. But Bernal looks great. Remco looks great. We've got a great GC battle on our hands, so we're lucky to be watching this. Normally, the, the first week of the Giro can be a bit of a pain to get through, but this has just been a great race so far, and I only expect it to get better. And one more note. I, I know I said that was my last note. One more note. Bernal got, Egan Bernal got third at Strada Bianchi this year, and Wednesday, the day after tomorrow's rest day, we are going back to those same roads. It's a, it's a very, very gravel-heavy heavy stage. I'm actually shocked how much gravel there is. It's very rare you see a Grand Tour stage with this much off-road riding, but it's a really similar course. I expect Bernal to be great on it, you know, since he was so good at the Strada Bianchi, Bianchi one-day race. Evanipol, I think, will, I think if I'm just guessing, Evanipol won't be as good. You know, he's not as polished a racer as Bernal just because he's raced, you know, so much less through his career not an experienced one-day racer by any stretch of the imagination. I don't believe he's done much, if any, world tour racing that's on gravel or like mixed surfaces. So, and the most key thing, the most interesting thing to me is he's never had to race after a rest day. So that can be an incredibly tricky day for a lot of riders. Um, for example, TJ Van Garderen, super talented American. I believe he was fourth overall at the tour one year. He just could never, could never figure out the rest day. He would always have a bad day after that rest day. I think that could possibly trip Evan to pull up. And I expect Bernal to have a great, great, great day on Wednesday and probably put a little bit more time into him. But we'll get into our interview with, uh, with Marco right now. So Marco Panati is kind of the patron saint of, of the cerebral cyclist movement. He was a six-time Italian time trial champion, won four stages of the Giro d'Italia, two individual stages and two team time trial stages, was ninth overall there in 2010, which is a crazy re- since that wasn't his rider profile at all. The short of his career is that he was able to find margins where others weren't, 
because he's so intelligent and studied the sport so much that he was able to carve out kind of a, a niche and a career as like the thinking man cyclist um, by just thinking things through and studying things more than anyone else. He was able to excel at, at certain disciplines like the time trial or solo wins on the road. And he was in the pro ranks when the time trial went through a major transformation, really, really, really became a major part of the sport and like a very studied part of the sport. And there was a lot of advancement in time trial technology. I mean, if you look at the average speed that someone like Philippe Ogana can ride at versus the average speeds, you know, even Lance Armstrong would ride at in a time trial, the discipline has clearly, clearly advanced um, a lot. And I, I credit a lot of that to Marco Panati. He is kind of the godfather to the, the modern time trial movement. He's currently a performance coach at Team Bike Exchange, which is, of course, um, the team of Simon Yates at the current Giro d'Italia. But Marco, thanks for, thanks for coming on. It's great to have you. Thanks for the invitation. And so you're a, you're a performance coach at bike ex, Team Bike Exchange. Is that correct? That's where you are this year? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I'm one of the coach. Thank you. And you, so you take like a bundle of riders and, and you train them in specific ways, or do you kind of train the whole team on one specific? No, I, I, I train a, a, group, a group of riders, and then I review the time trial uh, training for uh, the whole team and uh, the time trial preparation in uh, race days in time trial. I take care of this part of the, of the races, the time trial specifically. Okay, which makes sense because in your career you were – like a time trial genius that was yeah, yeah yeah i think correct me if i'm wrong but that's like your big advantage was that you were you had kind of discovered the the art and science of time trialing performance before a, a lot of other riders did yeah yeah it was a, a discipline i uh i was good at and you know and um both as a rider and later as a you know post rider career as a coach and so I continue to, to work on that. And were you good at that from like, from like a very young age? Or is that something you kind of identified that you could excel at as your career advanced? Yeah, probably. Uh, I was, um, you know, the, at the young age, I, I was only able to win a solo racing. So I kind of uh, fine-tuned into the discipline. And then um, there was a, this, uh, I'm not saying gap, but... There was this void in the in the in the competition, and it was something that I was excelling to compared to uh, to, to 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 the other uh, you know finishing like uphill or or sprint, and um, I found myself also to having the right mindset, you know, being able to to pace myself and to to um, to train. For the discipline, you know, short and hard uh, training, shorter and harder training than that, that for road racing, let's say like this. I mean, you approach the sport with like such a scientific mind and you're really an expert like in the art of training. Um, I really wanted to pick your brain about like what what is going on at this Euro with like rem like even Egan Bernal, he's leading the race currently. He hasn't raced. I believe he had a 53 day gap racing between his last race and the Giro. And Rimko's in second, and he had a 266-day gap in racing, which I, I don't think I couldn't. I went back. I had I don't think I could find another example of a rider that's doing this well with that big of gap in racing between races. So I really yeah. wanted to um, pick your brain. Like, is this something that's going to be a trend? I mean, it, this is a big copycat sport, so everyone, if they see something that's successful, they'll try to copy it, even if it's not the best idea for them personally. Um, or do you think this is just like a fluke and both these guys are super talented and they would probably succeed no matter what? Yeah, I think uh, you're right. In, in, uh, there's a different uh, way to explain that. And you're right, there's a trend uh, that was uh, it became clearer last year due to the long break everybody has to take. So we saw that the level of, uh, of competition was higher. You know, there's the the speed and the you know the power of the racing were, were really high uh, from from August, despite the lack of racing in the for for uh, yeah basically six months for somebody was the first day was became in August, and uh, I think there are a few things to explain here. One, in my opinion, one is we're talking about 
big talents, so high aerobic capacity. And so these, uh, these rider, you know, uh, not everybody would, would fit in, in, this, in this scenario, but they are big talented. I think also another, another, another important thing to say is that uh, especially Grand Tour are uh, still road racing, okay? But it's, it's like a different, uh, a different sport other than a one-day race like a classic, like Tour of Flanders. You know, I mean, I can see because the, the demands that you find in the Grand Tour uh, in terms of climbing meter, in terms of the length of the, of the, of the race itself, it is something that uh, it's very difficult to prepare. Not it's very difficult, but uh, it's more easy to, to prepare in training, especially nowadays with, with the support that they have with the training camp and altitude. Than, uh, uh, than do through specific racing. I give you an example. Uh, in every Grand Tour, there is an average between 48,000 to 55,000 uh, climbing meter in the past year. And a race like Romandy, which is six days long, and it's considered preparation race for, for uh, Giro, is probably between uh, 6,000 and 10,000 meters of climbing. So I remember in 2011, I did Tour of Romandy. The total amount of climbing was 6,000 meters, okay? And in the Giro, you had the Gardecha uh, stage at 6,500 climbing meters in one day. Yeah, so, yeah. So uh, that's, uh, and then if you, if you take, maybe the only, the only, even if you take uh, Tour of Catalonia, Tour of Basque Country, the the average. Uh, just, we are just talking about climbing meter. The average uh, of the the total accumulated climbing meter of, of this stage race is not even close to the to the average you know that you find in the Grand Tour. Because maybe the only one that can get close is 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 a Dauphiné. Because it has three, four days usually, uh, you know, they, they, uh, because of the area it's raising, because of the period is in June, so you can go in the Alps. Why, you know, because of the season, it's very difficult for, uh, for, uh, a, you know, for a race like Catalonia or Pais Basque or Tour of the Alps to go in the long climbs, you know, and so the, the geography and the and, and the, the morphology, you know, the, and the the climate is made, made it very difficult. So the best way to prepare this to get to get ready for that amount of load in climbing is, you know, probably go to a camp in Sierra Nevada or or in uh, in Tenerife, where you know there's good weather, there's long mountain, and so we're just talking about this. But if you have to prepare Tour of Flanders, or uh, so the best way to prepare Tour of Flanders, we know we, because in in Grand Tour we know. What is the what are the demands? We know what what is uh, uh, what is required. We know the recovery, and you can kind of simulate that in training. But and we know as well uh, the the model of racing in, in for Tour of Flanders. But the best way to prepare Tour of Flanders is to other decade, which which is a mini Flanders, and to prepare other decade is to do again uh, Weber uh, or uh, uh, if uh, is to do head for head news blood. So this yeah. type of racing, this type of demand. As there's so much more than, than, than power. There's uh, the knowledge of the courses. So th that's why racing, uh, it's, it's, a different, it's a different thing. It's a, they are, we are talking about two different sports. We're talking about like uh, uh, the difference that you have between uh, track cycling and, be, and, uh, you know, <laughs> and a mountain bike. Yeah, you know? yeah. Or within, track cycling, within track cycling, you have the, the individual pursuit and you have uh, the, uh, the points race. Big talent can win both of them, but you know the, you know they have to you you prepare you prepare for these races in a slightly different way, and and then and that's I think if it's a it's a trend, but if you think about it, even in the in the Armstrong era, okay, regardless of whatever you know what happened, he was the one that probably introduced the 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 
the concept of preparing Grand Tour through recons, through camps, uh, and you know, and it was not racing much, you know, other yeah. than Tour de France was doing in the Dauphiné or Swiss, and and then it was doing maybe the classic, you know, yes, Baston Liège, and then you couldn't you didn't see him until uh, until Dauphiné. He was doing a altitude camp or a, in, in in May, so that was anticipating the trend that that we see now, and I think. Uh, uh, you know when you have because the way the way you go to a race now you, uh, even before three week stage race is not uh, even if it's ridden super fast but it's uh, the way the, a stage race de- develops is you know it's it's long three weeks so you need the good ability to recover it's the most important thing a big big ba- you know you need a big a good fitness level which you can achieve in training. The only the thing that surprises me uh, with this is that if you the, the farther you stay out of the um, racing, it will be the uh, problems in a in a in racing like crashing or stuff like that. So, but then you need the, either luck, you need luck, and you need a good team, and both Bernal and, and uh, you know to advise them to protect them uh, in uh, in these moments of the race where. Where you need the experience, you know, or that you need, you know, pay attention to crashes, and so they're, they're very, very good at that. Yeah, and we even saw Rimko yesterday's finish. He kind of slipped back a little bit. I, I read it as kind of a positioning mistake. No, yeah, yeah, you're correct. Because I look at, I read uh, initially when I saw this, I saw uh, even the commentator said, you know, Remco is in trouble around last kilometer because he was pretty far back from the from the. But then I already had the problem in the tunnel because there was this tunnel one kilometer long from minus three, more or less, to minus two. And he entered the tunnel like on the on the, on the wheel of, I think it was Almeida. And he, he, there was a Ineos line, lined up on the left side. It was just uh, around third or fourth position. And he said in the tunnel, something happened between him and the Ineos rider. They maybe they touched. And so he lost a few positions there. And, and if you see if you see the image, you can see that out of the tunnel you don't see Remco in the front anymore, and probably it was <laughs> in the back also when when uh, you know Moscow made the move and 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 uh, and, uh, and Bernal attacked. So and even even considering that he finished fourth, I think. So I I, he, he, I think he made a big a big uh, yeah. effort in the final. So we we I, I think uh, it would be a big mistake to. To take it, uh, to take it as a, you know, I think it was a uh, just bad position. So he lost time, but the form definitely was there. Definitely was. You know I mean, he did. Uh, I think if, if he was there, I don't know how did he. Maybe he wouldn't have lost for sure the time he had lost in the end. Maybe but now with the team won, but but Rebko would have been second or third for sure. So you think it, it's kind of been false assumptions throughout the years of like, well, Romandy has mountains, so I'm going to do that to prepare for the Giro. But if you actually dive into the numbers, it do, it makes less sense than just going to the Canary Islands and doing massive climbing meters. Yeah, I think uh, I think it depends of you know first of of the role that you're gonna have, and uh, I would still <laughs> have done Romandy, okay, but maybe the the risk of doing one week in bad weather, you know, sometimes it's uh, depends on depends on on the type of rider. And uh, I think it's a big risk to put uh, um, it's also you know the, the team invests a lot of money in, in a big rider. And then if you if you take the risk to send him in only to the Giro and something can happen like can happen to Landa, okay, then all your uh, eggs are in one basket, okay, yeah, and then yeah. it's, it's broken, okay. So it's a big. Uh, not everything can afford to do that, okay? With big names, okay. Maybe Ineos can do that with with the uh, with um, uh, with Bernard. And the other thing that I wanted to say is that I don't know about Remco, but for sure Bernard, the decision to do to the Giro uh, with no racing before, I think it was due to the the fact that he wanted to stay at altitude as long as possible, as close to the race, because. You know, uh, I think uh, the trend that that became more than uh, that that they became more popular in the past year is that you know more and more riders, especially doing GC, 
or, uh, or except for even for the classic, but except for sprinter, they spend uh, more time in altitude than ever in the past uh, in the past year. And altitude has been something you know a tool that coaches have been known to 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 be an important tool for for training for endurance training since the probably Mexico Olympic Games '86. But I remember in the late '80s we had the national team. Uh, of, of amateur led by Josué Zenoni. They were going to Livigno 1800. They were not going to take, but in the summer, there was a, a must to go to altitude in Livigno, 2000 meters, 1800 meters. And, and I think that uh, that train disappeared somehow, you know, in the, in the, in the uh, dark era of endurance sports in the 90s or of 2000, when, you know, uh, blood booster came, uh, came along. And so, uh, but you know, or people were still going to altitude, but but the difference that altitude were able to make were kind of uh, I think blunted by by erythropoietin or you know or or, uh, or blood doping. Nowadays, you know that that uh, things have became back to normal since uh, you know maybe 10, 15 years. Altitude became popular again, and and even I think that they have refined the art. And uh, of uh, of uh, the best way to do it, you know, finding the proper amount of uh, of uh, the right amount for for um, to balance the training and the adaptation. So maybe the 2,000 meters better made a big difference between 2,000 and 1,700, but 2,400 means really too high. So every rider finds its own uh, uh, because they do it multiple times a year for many years. The more, the more they do it, the more they know what, what, what is best for, for, for every individual. And so I know Bernal, I think, he, he spent, you know, especially for Colombia, right, this, this is uh, an advantage for them. But you want to keep it, you know, effect for attitude doesn't last longer than, depends on the individual, but over four or five weeks start to fade for sure. And so that's why I think he stayed, he tried to maybe to lose, you know, to, to risk to, to start the Giro with no racing, but to, to be able to carry the benefit of altitude until the end of the Giro. That, yeah, that's a really good point. And that's, that's very interesting. And do you think there's anything, I mean, he's looked, Bernal's looked so good. Um, I'm sure you remember 2008, apologies, everyone. I meant to say 2018 with Simon Yates. It kind of reminds me of, how he started that Giro, and then he kind of had troubles at the end. And my personal opinion is it bred this kind of bad logic of like, well, he was too, he wasted too much energy in the beginning, and Chris Room yeah. rode slow, and that's how you win Grand Tours. But that's kind of discounting like Bernal took, you know, 12 seconds plus a 10 second time bonus yesterday on most of the GC riders. Like, that's really valuable time, probably worth your. You know the amount of energy he's expending. You see the stage of today. He got yeah, I saw Bernal, that. Bernal and 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 the Venepool did a sprint it with twenty k to go, like with a full lead out. So they got one, got two seconds, and the other one one second. So you made a good point about that, and I think a big rider like Bernal can keep the jersey halfway through the Giro, can take the jersey and keep it until the end. Okay. Because he's won the tour, so he's shown yet the consistency. But if I look at the race in general, not only 2018, but also 2017, 2016, 2019, uh, 2000, even last year, the rider who was uh, in the in the jersey at halfway was not the one who was the jersey in Milan. Yeah. Okay, we're not talking, about, but here we're talking about Bernard. That's the only thing I would say. But we know the answer in two weeks' time. But for sure, I was thinking to say he's got a very good shape now compared to the rest. Yesterday, did you know? And I wonder we will be will he be able to to keep it until the end. So everything is still open for sure. He has a, on his side. He has a strong team, and he has shown in the past he got consistency. We need the Tour de France, but you have ten riders in one minute. Every one of of a, of a different theme. So everything can still happen. Because the, we haven't seen a big mountain yet, you know. I know the stages in the in the last week. It will be another different racing. It will be a different a different type of racing. So it will be interesting to to see. He, he still remains the favorite, in my opinion. But just looking at what happened in the, in the past uh, 
in the past uh, four or five years. It's going to be uh, interesting to see. Interesting to see. I will see Roglic dominating, but even Roglic, you know, in the in the four or five days, last four or five days of the Grand Tour, there's always a small a small drop. It started at the very high level, so I, I still I, I would still <laughs> prefer to be in the position of Bernard yeah, having the yeah. jersey, you know, and defend himself, especially with the team with the strong team that he has. I would still, you know, and I. I always have, like, you know, the, uh, have a team that starts strong in a Grand Tour because, you know, once you, you start winning or, you know, leading the race, then it's, it's you build the momentum, okay? But, you know, it's not, uh, it's not making, uh, he hasn't made the big, uh, big gaps between himself and the, and the rest of the, you know, I mean, 20 others in one minute. You can still say the Giro has to start yet. <laughs> It, do you think there's something special about the Giro? Like, because at the Tour, the strong rider in the first week almost always wins. Like, if you think of like Armstrong, Chris Froome, Wiggins, those guys were all so strong in the first week and they never seemed to falter and they kind of just took the jersey to Paris. And the Giro, it, as you're saying, it's, I mean, you look back at the last five years and you have to pick the winner from like the middle of the GC sheet after yeah. the first week. Yeah, Why I do you think, think that, that I- is? Yeah, I think that the difference is because um, the stakes are not so high relative to the Tour de France. So usually the Tour de France, the team, they bring the best team. You know, a team that go for GC, look pick at, at uh, Jumbo Visma. When they tried to win the Giro with Roglic, they didn't have the best team they could have had, you know, and they taken the best uh, of them. And even 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 uh, Froome when he won the Giro, he didn't have the team. You know, he could have had, he could have had all the all the had maybe normally in the Tour de France. So this is one reason. Second thing is because uh, it's a bit less important. People are more willing to take risk. So um, while in the Tour de France, if you are you know top ten, sometimes you think about first defending your position rather than taking another one. So that, that uh, this combined with the strength of the team, uh, because, because maybe the, 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 the you know, team is stronger. So if you take the risk, there's more chance that, you know, they're going to take you back. You know, if you attack from afar or it's, it's less likely to see this crazy move or, but in the Giro, you know, because teams are a little bit weaker and they're, there's also there is the um, the um, uncertainty of of bad weather days, like we've seen. So I think this bad weather will will take its toll later in the race. Okay. Because it not on fatigue, physical. Because when it's cool weather, you actually recover quicker. But the mental uh, fatigue of you know dealing with bad weather, it's it's harder than on on the rider. So this this element of weather. And the fact that you you rather are, are more are more um, keen to take risks because you know they they say wow I don't I don't defend you know they want to to it's more important to win a stage rather than than uh, finishing sixth or seven or ten okay so they they're more willing to take to take risk in the Giro and so that's why I think uh, um, changes are, are are more 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 likely to happen than the Tour de France. That's a great point and. Do you think so? Remco, everyone assumes that he's going to be a good uh, high mountain climber. Do you, I, I guess it kind of makes sense because he's a good time trialist, but do you think that could be potentially a flawed assumption since we've never even, I, I don't think I've seen him race really in the high Alps at the world tour level before, which seems like a big unknown? I think uh, it is, uh, it did, uh, for sure, he did a lot of a lot of training in the long in the long in the long climbs because he's been to Sierra Nevada, he's been to Tayo. Yeah. Uh, but he's, he's miss, he missed the experience, you know, in the real uh, in the, the real experience in the in the Dolomites. But okay, he won last year, I think, um, at the Attica Ionica, where the stage also in Passo Giao. So he got some experience there. He won uh, Burgos. I mean, he's a strong climber because. Uh, just look at his his weight. He's, he's small and he has a lot of power. He's higher. So I think he, he the only the only thing with 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 Emiko is we don't know the third week. You know how big is his aerobic base development. But 
being a talent, he's for sure he recovers well. And so, yeah, it would be a big, uh, and, and, and it seems to, to really take every opportunity, okay? Today, his team was the one looking for the free second bonus, okay? <laughs> but then we see every day they raise like there is no tomorrow. <laughs> so, and then that was uh, maybe understandable last year. <laughs> because if you race, you started and you didn't know if the race was going till the end. But but this Giro, yeah, yeah, it would be interesting to see how how it turns out. If these guys are racing like sometimes like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> no, no. But there are two weeks. There is tomorrow. There is two another ten stages, and you know, yeah. the most. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, it will be interesting to see. Do you think? I, it feels, I, it, memory is, is fallible, so it's hard to tell, but it feels so much more intense day to day than it used to be in the GC stand. Like, I, you know, I don't remember guys fighting for every second this early in Grand Tours, you know, as we've seen, you know, let's say post COVID, post 2020, when we had like three Grand Tours decided by a minute. And then now we have Remco and Bernal sprinting for, you know, just second second differences in these mid-stage sprints. Do you think that's been, has that been a change or has it kind of always been that aggressive for the GC races? I think it will, it will change because now you, you look at one, one or two seconds, but in the end, this second will make a difference. It just, but give you the mental, uh, uh, the, the small mental edge, okay? I mean, I'm sure uh, uh, Bernal, won't be happy to have lost one second the way and and uh, while on the other side quick step and and benepuli would be you know they will go into race day with more motivation than ever just to give gain one second but one second will make a difference you know i can bet my whole house that 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 won't make a difference okay i can tell you but Sometimes, you know, this, it gives you a flip in the mind or a turning point into the team environment that, you know, made you feel, uh, give you the confidence to, that you can make it. So that's, that's a different, they can make it. That's, it is like a, it's like an opening time trial in, um, in Torino. Nine kilometers, you know, in 10 seconds you, or 20 seconds, you got all GC favorites, okay? Almeida... Was the first, the strongest one. That in five days later, they lost four minutes on cold <laughs> day. So I mean, this is it's it's just pure confidence, and it's good to be. It's better to have one second more than one second less, but it doesn't make a difference. Okay, unless in in the in the in the in the balance, it makes a big difference in the in the in the in the mind of the of the athletes. So that's. Probably in the end, it, it makes a difference, but not in the way that it will win the zero by one second. You understand what I mean? It makes yeah, a difference yeah. because it changed the it changed the inertia of the game. Okay, it's like uh, it's like I don't know in any even even in, in a team sport. Sometimes there is in tennis, you know, there is a you know one 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 rider is leading four uh, one, and but you know all of a sudden there's a as a as a break. There's a break, and then you know the 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 rider who's winning two sets zero in the end he lost three point two. And what happened? There has been a game that sometimes in the game he lost one. Uh, I don't know a bad call from the referee, or you know sometimes uh, this is still a you know these riders are playing also mind game to, between them between the racing. Game. They race head to head, shoulder to shoulder, so it's uh, they're not robots. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. I feel like that gets overlooked a lot. Um, I, yeah, I probably don't focus enough on that. I feel like it's everything kind of gets boiled down to the things we can physically look at, like time differences, but the momentum changes and just riders feeling There's confident. Momentum There's momentum changes. I mean, we've seen this in the past. Eh? Uh, I mean, yeah, Nibali won the Giro 2016 when... Uh, with the jersey, the Kreuzvik, you know, he put yeah. him under the under pressure there. He crashed. He still will get on his bike, but that changed the momentum of the race, you know. And then Nibali became dominant. And then the, the other, then Kreuzvik, I think he couldn't even finish on the podium, or you know. And and 
24 hours, he was the leader of the race, dominating the race. How did that happen? You know, sometimes it's uh, it's not that he got sick or okay, he had a crash, but it's, sometimes rather crashes, and you know they they have seven lives like cats. <laughs> and I think people forget Nibali didn't win this, didn't win the race on that stage. He actually had, if you remember, stage 20. He still wasn't in the lead, and he had to drop yeah. Chavez. So it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This momentum was building, and like Chavez probably should have won that race, but he couldn't stop it. At a yeah, yeah, he couldn't, you know. And then it was like a different. Uh, I think that you know the, the inertia change of the game. So there was a snowball effect that uh, within the team, everybody started believing it, and then in the end, uh, and on the other side, they had rather start having a bug in his mind. It's not. Maybe go to bed. It's not sleeping, you know. Maybe, maybe if you measure it, if you measure, you, you check uh, <laughs> REM time or deep sleep time. Maybe something changes there physically. Oh, that's okay. But yeah. how do you start with the faults? You know, you know. So it's uh, <laughs> because there, there is no. I don't see why why a team, you know, would go such so crazy for three seconds today. Because they think they want to, you know, to, 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 they, they want to find something to believe in, in and at the same time, they want to, to scrub the confidence of the competitors, if it's the right word, right? you understand? You know? Yeah, yeah. Start, start putting a bug in the mind of the competitor, thinking, ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't want to take up any more of your time. You've been, you've been very generous. So. I'll let you go, but that was uh, some really interesting insights into the, the GC battle we have brewing, and that yeah, it's a good reminder that we're, we, the race we should catch up in two weeks and see and see what comes out. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, may I might have to track you down in the in the third week to see this. Both of these guys might not even be in the zero anymore. <laughs> okay, thanks for the talk. Yes, thank thank you so much, Marco. Ciao. Well, I hope you enjoyed that fascinating conversation with Marco Panati. Uh, we were lucky that he was willing to donate that much of his time to give us something to think about in this first rest day of the Giro d'Italia. Um, I'll be dropping in possibly a, uh, a, floating, a floating podcast before next week, and then I'll be popping in at least two times a week until we, until we get to Milano and see how this thing finishes. So have a great rest day and enjoy the racing this week. It's gonna get it's gonna get even more exciting. We're just gonna hit more beautiful and beautiful regions of uh, the wonderful country that is Italia. Thanks for listening. 